In an episode of Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle entitled Toilet Books, he talks about how Dan Brown is simultaneously one of the most successful and also one of the worst writers ever. He quotes a passage from The Da Vinci Code in which Dan Brown writes something along the lines of The famous man sat on the red chair. Stuart Lee's criticism of Dan Brown is based mainly on his complete ineptitude for writing in the English language. And while this might be a little bit controversial, that's essentially my criticism of Ernest Hemingway. most famous writers in the Western canon, not only for his literature, but also for his personality and his lifestyle. He was famous for a lot of short story collections, six in fact, seven novels, two non-fiction works, one of which was about bullfighting, which I guess I'll get back to later, and a lot of journalism, which is where he started out as a writer. He also won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954, six or seven years before he died from suicide. And the judges on the panel specifically mentioned his final novel, The Old Man and the Sea. Well, it's not really a novel, it's a novella. It's just over 100 pages long. And that's what I'm going to be talking about in this episode of the Bibliographer Podcast. While not much happens in the novel, really, I guess I should still say, as I always do, spoilers, because I will be talking about the plot, again, of which there's not that much, but it's still worth talking about. Essentially, a brief overview of the novel, it follows Santiago, who is a Spaniard from the Canary Islands, who is now living in Cuba, and he's a fisherman, and he's gone over 80 days without having caught anything, and we find him on one particular day where he's certain that his luck is going to change. He goes out early in the morning on his on his sailing boat, on his skiff. He sails really, really far into really, really deep open water, catches a huge marlin, one of the biggest marlin maybe there's ever been, after a lengthy struggle, which lasts a couple of days, actually. He then has to tie it to the side of the skiff and bring it back home. On the way, he loses almost all of the marlin to sharks. And that's the plot of the novel. Now, I suppose for the sake of fairness, I'm going to start with the things I quite like. That's not to say I find these things, which I'm going to mention, enjoyable to actually read, but I think the ideas themselves are kind of cool. One of the things which Hemingway employed a lot in his novels is the idea of implied translation. Implied literal translation, in fact. Quite a few of his novels deal with people whose first language is not English. Rather than be, a, in my opinion, good translator and translate what they would have been saying in a way which is palatable to read and which sounds nice, Hemingway often translated their dialogue 
directly. So that is to say, literally. This is used to great effect, for example, in For Whom the Bell Tolls, which I've also read. I've struggled my way through all 450 pages of it, or however long it is, and didn't really enjoy any of it. But anyway, in that novel, the characters often refer to each other as thou, as well as you. And this was Hemingway's way of representing the difference between the informal tu and the formal usted. My pronunciation is probably horrific, so I apologise. And what it means is you get a very clear idea of what the formal and the informal were. However, this technique has been criticised because it makes the novel pretty weird to read in terms of dialogue. You can never say that Hemingway's novels are difficult to read, but they, they sometimes read weirdly. One of the examples I found while I was doing some research for this podcast is that the construction What Passes That is used a lot in For Whom the Bell Tolls, which, which I must admit I don't remember. But that's a, an, an implied translation of a Spanish construction, and obviously that sounds really, really weird. Another one is that the character of Maria is referred to as the Maria, which is something I find quite interesting stylistically to use. In German, the article is also often used before first names as an expression of kind of sweetness or familiarity, of, of cuteness. So you might say, dear James, and I mean, all it really means is James, but we, we just don't do that in English. And Hemingway does this also directly in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Now, to bring this back to The Old Man and the Sea, this is something that I really, really noticed happening. There are just really odd turns of phrase, which are obviously Hemingway's attempt to directly translate how people would have talked. The, again, there's something about that concept which I find kind of cool, but now we will move on to what I really, really dislike about The Old Man and the Sea and Hemingway's literature in general, which is that it's just terribly written. So some examples of The Old Man and the Sea being dreadfully written. Here we go. This is going to make up the brunt of this podcast. It's going to be me reading out crap passages from The Old Man and the Sea. On page two, <laughs> on the second page of the novel, the old man has a, this young boy who's his friend and they sometimes go fishing together. The boy knows that the old man's quite poor so he like brings him beer and food and stuff and makes sure he hasn't died in his sleep or whatever. They're talking in this passage and they have this conversation. Remember how you went 87 days without fish and then we caught big ones every day for three weeks? I remember, the old man said. I know you did not leave me because you doubted. It was Papa made me leave. I am a boy, and I must obey him. I know, the old man said. It is quite normal. He hasn't much faith. No, the old man said. But we have, haven't we? Yes, the boy said. Can I offer you a beer on the terrace, and then we'll take the stuff home? Why not, the old blah, blah, blah. And it just goes on like that. There's a hundred pages of this, of writing, which could have been written by a prepubescent, and not from one of the most famous authors. <laughs> one of the most famous American authors. One of the most famous authors in the Western canon, possibly in the history of literature ever. So with that in mind, let's play Hemingway or Prepubescent Child!
Hello and welcome to Hemingway or Prepubescent, the game show all about figuring out who wrote what. And tonight's prize is absolutely sod all. Tonight's contestants, Jim, all the way from Surrey, England. Hey, Jim, how you doing tonight? Hi, Jim. Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Hi, yeah, all right. That's great, Jim. Let's play Hemingway or Prepubescent Child. <laughs> Round one. This is just to get the ball rolling, Jim. See if you can figure out whether this was Hemingway or a prepubescent child. I like the beer in cans best. I know, but this is in bottles. Hotty beer. I take back the bottles. That's very kind of you, the old man said. Should we eat? I've been asking you to, the boy told him gently. I have not wished to open the container until you were ready. I'm ready now, the old man said. I only needed time to wash. Where did you wash, the boy thought. So, Jim, what do you think? Do you think this passage was Hemingway, or do you think it was a prepubescent child? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a prepubescent child, Jim. I, I, I don't think any famous writer would, would, would ever, ever write that badly. Oh, Jim, I'm sorry you failed the first round. That was indeed Hemingway. But no worries, it's all to play for still in round two. Let's try this one, Jim. Here we go. There are two more hours before the sun sets, and maybe he will come up before that. If he doesn't, maybe he will come up with the moon. If he does not do that, maybe he will come up with the sunrise. Come on, Jim, you can do this. Was that Hemingway, or was that a prepubescent child? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, Jim, but... But I'm pretty sure that must be a ten-year-old. I think that's a prepubescent. Oh, Jim, I'm sorry. It was Hemingway again. Come on, Jim. You know you can do better than this. There's still time. Into round three. Here we go. A short one for you, Jim. Come on, you can do this. Here we go. They had the scent and were excited. And in the stupidity of their great hunger, they were losing and finding the scent in their excitement. Come on, Jim. Take your time. Take your time. Think about it. I'll, I'll, I'll say it again for you. Here we go. They had the scent and were excited. And in the stupidity of their great hunger, they were losing and finding the scent in their excitement. Now, now, what do you think that was, Jim? Uh... Oh, uh, oh, I'm, I'm really not sure about this one, actually. I've been, I've been a bit hard done by the last two rounds, so, you know, it could be, could be either. Jim, Jim, I'm gonna have to push you for an answer. The, the, the clock's, the clock's ticking. Oh, okay, um, well, I guess I'm, uh... Come on, Jim, I'm gonna, gonna need an answer, Jim, I'm gonna need an answer. Okay, um, I'll go for prepubescent child. It must, it must be a child this time. I, I think that's probably an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, considering the... The use of excitement twice in the space of about 15 words and scent as well. And the fact that there are so many ands and no commas and stuff. I, th I think that's probably... Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. You're wrong again. And that's the end of the game. And Jim goes home with nothing. Ha! Well, that was Hemingway versus Prepubescent Child. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Jim. Bye.
Bye. We'll see you next time. Good night. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe that, maybe that, maybe that got my point across, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, this goes on for just the, the whole thing. The, these, these awful sentences. Firstly, Heming, he, he obviously never learned how to use a comma, and I don't understand how. Apparently, this style comes from his days as a journalist, where he wasn't analysing or commenting, he was simply reporting the news. And I can, I, I can kind of see how that might be the case. I, I, I think that Orwell, for example, had, well, suffered from a similar-ish affliction in that he was a fantastic non-fiction writer, but reading his novels is a proper pain. They're, they're for the most part, really not that good, not well-written, and often quite boring. I, I relatively recently read Keep the Aspidistra Flying, and... It's, it just it was a really, really unenjoyable read. It was very heavy-handed, and just in general, Orwell didn't have a great turn of phrase for fiction, I don't think. His non-fiction, however, is some of the best that's ever been written, and he was really, really good at that. His humour really came through in his non-fiction. He was able to be concise and to the point, while still managing to write in a nice way, the purple passages that he writes in his fiction, just they, they don't have the same effect somehow. And maybe this is true of Hemingway. As I mentioned, his his journalism influenced that, and through that, he invented the iceberg style. It's meant to be that you leave out far more than you write. And what that means is his style is really, really minimalistic, and he writes sentences like this. All my life the early sun has hurt my eyes, he thought, yet they are still good. In the evening I can look straight into it without getting the blackness. It has more force in the evening too, but in the morning it is painful. Like it's just horrible, it's jarring to read. Even if this is meant to be an implied translation, which I believe it is, it's still not, not nice to read. You could, you could write an implied translation and if you only used it for dialogue, somehow make it interesting, but... The example I used earlier of For Whom the Bell Tolls, he doesn't only use it in the dialogue. It's also, as we can see here, in the narration. And it's not only the minimalistic style which is horrible, it's also his use of adjectives. There's this one passage, this time it was a tentative pull, not solid nor heavy, and he knew exactly what it was. One hundred fathoms down, a marlin was eating the sardines that covered the point and the shank of the hook where the hand-forged hook projected from the head of the small tuna. Ugh! Ugh, ugh, as horrible. Hemingway's, <laughs> Hemingway's, what I think, excuse was that you were meant to not tell the reader what the any of the underlying themes were of your work. So you wrote this really, really surface level, superficial story and in a superficial style. And that the deeper meaning of that story was for the reader to kind of eke out of the events which were happening, which is kind of all well and good, fine. I, I also don't like novels which are really, really heavy-handed with their morals or their political viewpoints or anything like that. But you can still write them nicely. 
You can do the exact same thing as what Hemingway is trying to do with his theory of emission, the iceberg theory, and still write a really, really nice novel. I don't know, take like a cliched example. Machines Like Me, for example, the Ian McEwan novel, which I reviewed a couple of podcasts ago, does exactly that. It's really beautifully written, yet still asks and partially answers some really, really interesting questions about the nature of consciousness, the nature of human consciousness versus AI consciousness, the problems AI is going to bring with it if it gets to the stage where it's really, really intelligent, and particularly if it's really, really lifelike. And it does all of this while being, while not being heavy-handed in what it's trying to say, while just trying to ask questions rather than answer them, although, as I said, it does attempt to do that. And it's really, really beautifully written. It's possible to do this, Hemingway. Hemingway, it's possible to do this. Why do you not do this, Hemingway? Use of adjectives is really, really gross, though. This other passage as well. He looked at the sky and saw the white cumulus built like a friendly piles of ice cream and high above the thin feathers of the cirrus against the high September sky. Why? Just why? If, if you were a ten-year-old and you wrote that for a literature assignment at school, you would be corrected. They would tell you not to use the word high, particularly not in the same sentence, describing the same thing twice, and not even in a, in a nice way. It's not even a nice sentence. You would be corrected as a prepubescent if you wrote this as a task at school. It's, it's crazy. And this is what fucking passed for literature in the first quarter of the 20th century. Give me strength. The one that we just heard Jim talking about in the game show, where they had the scent and were excited in the stupidity of their great hunger, they were losing and finding the scent in their excitement. I think that's so disgusting. It's one of the most disgusting sentences I've ever read. Anyway, I could go on and on and on about how bad Hemingway's writing is. And actually, I, I wanted to do that in this, in this podcast, <laughs> but I, 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 f I fear that will get annoying. So I won't. I, really, I'm nearly coming to the end of this episode. Really, basically, I mean, firstly, it's a very short book. There's not huge amounts to say about it, although people have really gone out of their way to examine the themes in it. Secondly, I don't want to spend too much time just ranting about stuff I don't like, as enjoyable as that might be for me. I'm not sure it's the most, <laughs> most fun to listen to. But regardless, there are a couple of other small things I want to touch upon. One of which is that the, the novel is meant, from my understanding, to kind of be this meditation on the relationship between man and nature. And that we are simultaneously part of nature, but also able to overcome it. Santiago, which incidentally is a translation of St. James, Tiago is the same as Diego, and they are both the... Latin words for James, and they come from the biblical Jacob. So there's your little bit of name-based trivia for the day. Anyway, Santiago is always sort of, although he's trying to kill this fish and overcome it, he's always both talking and thinking about how he respects the fish. And the fish is wonderful and great and magnificent, how it's this, this sort of eternal struggle between man and nature, and it's glorious. And after he's killed the fish, he, he feels guilty about it, more so guilty about it than he is proud of himself. Though, like all typical fishermen, or like all stereotypes of fishermen, he always he 
bangs on about how big it is literally the whole time. There are two things I'd like to say about this. Firstly, it's presented as this sort of romanticized story about nature, but from from my perspective, it's actually a story about torture. As I said, the fight with this marlin, he hooks it very early on on the on the first day. The fight with the marlin goes on for something like three days before the marlin finally jumps, and while it's jumping, he's able to slowly reel it in. It's not a romanticized story. This fish, which Santiago keeps referring to as intelligent and aware of the battle which is occurring between it and Santiago, it, it's not aware of that. All it is trying to do is survive and it's having a fucking dreadful time while doing it. But it's presented as this really romantic story of how the fish and he are sort of on an equal level and they're both old, big men who are expressing their masculinity and they get into this this huge struggle of li- literally of life and death. Santiago also sort of nearly dies a couple of times on the ship because he runs out of food and water because he's an idiot and didn't take enough with him. Great, how romantic. Essentially, it's a story about a man torturing an animal which he then doesn't even eat. It is, it is literally game fishing. He wants to take the flesh back and sell it, but he can't. He knows that he can't drag it onto his skiff. It's too big. It will sink the boat. And on the way back, he knows before they arrive that there are going to be sharks which are going to come and try and take a bite out of it. He hasn't got his his club with him. He's just got the oar and this knife which breaks after he kills like two sharks. In this journey of killing this fish, projecting these anthropomorphized ideas of what it must be feeling in this struggle, which it, it evidently isn't, he also manages to kill something like four or five sharks and he maybe kills three or four and seriously wounds another one. So he kills all of these fucking fish and then isn't even able to do, is it, he can't even say that it's for his living. He's not going to the market and selling it because he can't bring it back. And it's presented as this beautiful story about the struggle with nature. And it's not. It's a story about torture. And it's horrible. And it's not the first story about torture which Hemingway has written. Told you I would come back to this. He wrote a nonfiction book about bullfighting in Spain because he loved bullfighting. He's also written about deep sea fishing as well, but the bullfighting one is particularly heinous. I've only read passages, but he he writes these horrible descriptions of how wonderful and beautiful bullfighting is, and there's just absolutely no awareness of how horrific the acts are which are taking place in these bullfights. And I I just think that it's fucking pretentious. It's this horrible pretentious, cringy story about masculinity. It's not written well, and we're, we're meant to love these characters as these typical expressions of masculinity fighting with and overcoming nature while still showing it the respect it deserves. And they're just not sympathetic at all, really. Santiago cuts his hands on the line while he's trying to reel the fish in, and he's on the boat washing it in the sea. After he judged that his right hand had been in the water long enough, he took it out and looked at it. It is not bad, he said, and pain does not matter to a man. Ugh, isn't that just so cringe? How could anyone find this cool or sexy or heroic? 
It's just gross and badly written. It reminds me in that sense of On the Road, which is such a well-loved novel come autobiography. And really, Jack Kerouac basically just goes travelling around the country being a dickhead and living out this horrifically romanticised middle-class dream of being able to up sticks and go and do whatever you want. And he just treats people like shit along his journey, uses people, basically, writes about jazz and overly romanticises his trip, and then just goes back home to stay with, like, his mum or his aunt when he runs out of money, then spends something along the lines of two weeks to write the novel on one single sheet of paper as though that's cool. And it reads like it was written in three weeks. <laughs> Namely, terribly. I've, I've actually stolen that quip from somebody, but I, I can't remember who. Anyway, On the Road is rubbish as well. I can see how it could have been really important and inspirational for a generation of young people growing up in the 50s well, late 50s and 60s, interested in jazz and drugs and partying and freedom. But it reads like crap, and it's just the playing out of a cringy, embarrassing middle-class dream. And yes, that is a problem. <laughs> So I, I, I think that's about it for Old Man and the Sea. TLDR, it's badly written. It's an absolutely not timeless portrayal of any way crap ideas of masculinity. And it's pretentious in the way that you might expect from a novel written in the middle of the 20th century, because lots of them were pretentious at that time. Hemingway is just one symptom of a wider problem that I see with that era of American fiction. And most importantly, Hemingway evidently never learned how to use a comma. So I'm just going to end with one of my favourite lines from the book, which goes, Up the road in his shack, the old man was sleeping again. He was still sleeping on his face, and the boy was sitting by him, watching him. The old man was dreaming about the lions. And that's my favourite line, because it's the last line. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, it's really, really useful if you subscribe or follow on Spotify and leave a review on whichever app you're listening on. Give me some good stars, please. I mean, I suppose if you thought it was rubbish, then you can give me a bad review, but I'd prefer to have no review than a bad review, I suppose. Anyway, if you want some more content, you can follow me on Instagram, which is at the bibliographer. Or if you want some other content, which hasn't been updated in a while because I've been writing my master's thesis, you can head over over to jamesmatthewalston.medium.com where you can read me writing about smoking, Russian politics, hand jobs, cooking, relationships, academia, a whole range of different things to varying degrees of success and skill. Thanks again for listening and until next time.